Open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. So we got down to Acts chapter 4 verse 31 last week. We're going to go from verse 32 to the 11th verse of chapter 5. This section of the book of Acts is not a clean break where the chapter divide is. And so, beginning in verse 32 of chapter 4, read with me, follow with me, down to verse 11 of chapter 5. Uh, I was thinking about what to title this message today. I'm not really good with titles. Um, you know, um, Caleb always asks, what's the title of your message? So I just like Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 3. But I was thinking today, if I was going to title this message, I thought about titling it, Make the Church Great Again. Um, but then I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. But here's why I thought about that. Because today we're going to look specifically at great unity, great power, great grace, and great fear that came upon the church. And these are foundational to the growth of the church. The church is being built together as one in the power of God, the grace of God, and the fear of God. So unity, power, grace, and fear operating in love are necessary for the church to carry out its kingdom work. The preaching of the gospel and the making of disciples. And this is what we see here in Acts chapter 4. After the church was birthed, the Bible says there was great unity, there was great power, there was great grace, and there was great fear. Let's read the scripture. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Great unity. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of, of the things they were sold, that were sold. And laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Have you, not you have not lied to men, but to God. 
Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for, for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Father, we ask that you would help us to be people of truth. People who embrace not only your truth, but who embrace unity and power and grace. The great unity, the great power and the great grace that comes from you, that operates by love in your church. That we would be a people, that we, Christ Fellowship, would be a church operating in that unity, in that power, in that grace. And in the fear of the Lord to give witness to Christ for your glory. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. So here in chapter 4 and into chapter 5 of Acts, we see the church continuing uh, to function in the power of God. So Pentecost has come, the Spirit's been poured out. In the initial sermon that Peter preached, the Bible tells us that 3,000 men were saved. And then when Peter and John go to the temple and they encountered the lame man, not by chance. Remember, that man was over 40 years old and he was carried to the gate daily. And so that man had been there for decades, literally, which means that all the apostles, the disciples, and even Jesus himself had walked by that man many times. But it was on that fortunate day that God drew the attention of those apostles to that lame man, and that man was healed. And Peter preaches a sermon as a result of that, that healing in the court of the temple, and it says that 2,000 more were saved. And they go back to their, uh, their friends, their disciples who were gathered, and they tell them all that had happened, that they had been threatened with their life and told, commanded not to preach Jesus but they, their response was, is it better for us to obey man or is it better for us to obey God? You tell us, you religious leaders. And so they said, we cannot help but speak of these things which we have seen. And so they continued to preach the gospel even under threat. And so here, when you uh, get here to chapter 4, it's describing for us in verse 32 what the atmosphere was like in the church at that time, in those early days. And it says that now the multitude of those who believe, not just, remember, we started in Acts chapter 2 with 120 disciples of Jesus in an upper room, and the Spirit of God is poured out, and now we are, we are not far into the New Testament church. 
we are probably at most months out away from Pentecost, and we see now it's described as multitudes. And it says, Now the multitudes of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. So it says that the multitude of those who believed were of one heart. The word heart here is is not talking about the muscle in your body that pumps blood. It's talking about something much more broad and much deeper. This word heart speaks of the focus of a man's personal life. It speaks of his inner being, the inner life and the inner being of a man. His activity as a spiritual personality. The heart was the seat of man's moral and spiritual life. And we still, we still convey that today in talking when we say, oh, he, he has a good heart or she has a good heart. Well, we don't know. They, they may have physically a bad heart, but that's not what we're talking about, right? Someone does something kind, they're kind to us. Oh, yeah, they have a good heart. And so we still use this term to convey this reality. So they were of one heart. Their moral and spiritual life, all their activities, the motivation of what they did was unified. It says they were all of one soul. The soul is the seat of man's mind, his will, and his emotions. The word soul conveys the center of our thinking, of our willing, and of our feelings. The word also communicates the individual life or existence of a person. So these two words, the heart and the soul, really overlap and they combine to to give us a picture of what was motivating and what was driving these believers. It wasn't just their outward condition, it was the result, their outward condition, their outward behavior, what they were doing was a result of who they were inwardly. And God had given them new hearts and new life. And they were now, this people, unified with great unity. So much so that the Bible says that they were of one heart and one soul. And none of them said anything about, this is mine, you stay away. They had all things in common out of this great unity. So the term heart and soul is used in the scripture overlap as they both describe man's inner being. It's the heart and the soul of a man in his inward being that will be expressed outwardly through his life. To say that they were of one heart and one soul is to say that they were one in all of their moral and spiritual focus, individually and corporately, giving witness to Christ, And that desire to give witness to Christ is what bound them together into one heart and one soul. Their purpose in all they thought and all they did was to give witness to Christ and to glorify God. It should be our purpose today as the church. It should not be any different for us today as it was for them And as a result of that one heart and one soul, that great unity, 
The scripture says they had all things in common. They became one heart and one soul to such a degree that even their possessions were considered common to all. This is the result of God's love that was poured out into their hearts. And having all things in common resulted from the love of God and the love that they had for one another. I would hope that if I were in need, you would love me enough to maybe lend me a cup of sugar. Well, maybe not. If you love me, you wouldn't lend me a cup of sugar because I'm diabetic. So you would say, if I said, I need a cup of sugar to make me a big batch of yummy cookies. If you really love me, you'd say, no, you don't need to be eating a big batch of yummy cookies. But if I had a legitimate need and I, I was broken down and I said, hey, I, I need to borrow your car because... I can't get to where I need to go. Can you come and give me a lift? Can you come give me a ride? Maybe you'd love me enough to do that. And so we see in this unity that existed in the church, even their possessions were common to all. Their house, their houses belonged to one another. They were welcome. This had nothing to do, I want you to get this, this had nothing to do with compulsion except that they were compelled by love. They were not required to share their possessions. This was not a rule that God gave them or Christ gave them. Not an overt rule, but in a sense it was an unspoken rule because what does love demand? So it was, they weren't compelled to do this by some rule or command. They were compelled by love. The command is to love one another as Christ has loved us. And if we love one another the way Christ has loved us, what will we withhold from one another? Because what did Christ withhold from us? He gave his very life. He gave everything for us. And this is what compelled the early church. They understood that Christ gave all and withheld nothing. So giving their possessions, giving their time, their talent, their treasure was nothing to them because they understood the magnitude of the sacrifice that Christ made, and they understood the magnitude of the gift that Christ gave in giving himself. So they did, they did this willingly out of their love for God and out of their love for one another, and it should be no different among us today as God's people. For the same love of God that motivated the, motivated the church then should motivate us as the church today. Verse 33, and it says, With great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord, and great grace was upon them all. The apostles and all the disciples prayed. We see this in Acts chapter 4, verses 29 through 31. The, the verses preceding, the three verses preceding verse 32, records for us this prayer that the disciples prayed when they came back together. And the apostles, Peter and John, told them what had happened to them. They prayed this prayer, and they said, Lord, grant to us boldness. If Jesus just died on a cross, and he simply died and was buried, and there is no resurrection, then Paul writes this. He says, we are of all men most pitiable. If all we're living for is what we have on this earth, what we can get on this earth, then that is a sad state of living in a sad state of affairs. But Jesus did not just come and die and be buried for our sin. He came 
and he died and he was buried and he was raised in life so that we could be crucified with him in his cross and also be raised with him in his life. And so they gave witness with great power, they gave witness to the resurrection. And that witness came from the scriptures, from the Old Testament scriptures, from Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zacharias between the temple, between the altar. And that, that brings together all of the Old Testament scriptures from Genesis to the last of the writings there recording the deeds of the kings. The Jewish Bible's in a different order than our Bible. Our last book is Malachi. So we could say from Genesis to Malachi and everything in between the apostles and the disciples gave witness to the resurrection because the witness of the resurrection was in the Old Testament scriptures. We see this in the Gospels when Jesus is challenged by the Sadducees and he reminds them, God is a God of the living. Why are we talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if they're dead? If they're not alive, God is a God of the living. He is the God of resurrection. That's why we of all people on planet earth should be the most hopeful because whatever dies, we know that God can raise again. Whatever vanishes, whatever passes away, God can restore again. We've seen him do this throughout the testimony of scripture. And so they gave great witness to the resurrection and it says, great grace was upon them all. These were not extraordinary individuals. These were very ordinary people. Just like you and just like me. These are common folk whom God had poured his great grace upon. We may be tempted to think that God will not use us. We think up all sorts of reasons why we're not qualified, why we're not capable, why we're simply not able to do the things that God calls us to do. Or we read in the scripture and we say, I wish I could do that, but I know God could never use me that way. I wish I could give witness to Jesus, but, but I just am too afraid. I don't know enough of the Bible. We'll start reading your Bible. That's why we have a Bible reading challenge. Read it every day. Well, I read it, Pastor Jeff, but I just don't understand it. Well, keep reading it. Keep reading it. Keep reading it. Don't lean on your own understanding, but trust in the Lord and acknowledge Him in all your ways. And trust that the Holy Spirit on the inside of you will begin to bring illumination to that word that you're planting into your heart. These were ordinary men. Remember, it says that they were untrained and uneducated. This is what the religious rulers in the temple marveled over. 
They looked at Peter and John. They said, these are untrained, uneducated fishermen from Galilee. Listen to them. Look at them. They marveled, but they perceived that they had been with Jesus. They were untrained and uneducated men, but they were not men without great power and great grace. They did not have the credentials demanded by the world, but they had Jesus. You and I may not have the credentials that the world demands, but do we have Jesus? And do we have the Spirit of God? And are we filled with the Spirit of God and walking under the control and submission of the Spirit, trusting God to give to us His great power and His great grace to do the great things He may call us to do? I pray you are. The disciples of Jesus were not qualified by the world standards, but they were commissioned and they were commanded by Jesus Himself and they were filled with His Spirit. And so are we today. The great power and the great grace that God gives His children is more than sufficient. It was for them in their day and it is for us in our day today. Great power... And great grace is still ours today in Jesus. Don't read your Bible and wish that we could have the same power and the same grace they have because we have the same power and the same grace that they have. We have the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. That's what the scripture clearly teaches us. The question is, do we believe that? We might say, yes, I believe that, Pastor Jeff, because the Bible tells me so. But do we live like that? Do we act like that? And I'm not saying we should be presumptuous people, because we should not. We should be very humble people. But we, in our humility, should be very confident and very bold in knowing that the Spirit of God lives in us in the same power and the same grace that God gave his church in these, and this record we're reading here is the same power and the same grace he gives to his church today. In a world opposed to Christ and his gospel, we must remember the promised blessing of ruling with him if we suffer with him. Because what we see here is opposition against the church. And what we see happening today is growing opposition to the church. So with great power and great grace comes great blessing. But God's blessing may come in many forms. It can be sweet and it can also be bitter. And this is the point Paul makes when he writes and he says... Unless we suffer with him, we will not rule with him. And it's not that God desires for us to have hardship in our life. It's the reality that if we are people of God living out his gospel, we live in a world that fundamentally opposes us, and we will experience that pushback. Yes, even that hostility from the world. And this is a promise of blessing given to God's people that if we 
suffer with Him. We will rule with Him. There is a blessing associated with that. This is why Paul writes, he says, Oh, that I may attain to the sufferings of Christ. Paul wanted to fill himself up with the sufferings of Christ because he understood the blessing that came in living a life abandoned for Jesus and suffering the consequences of that that the world would bring. He was not afraid of the world. He was not afraid of what man could do to him. He embraced the blessing that God had promised to those who would walk in his ways and obey his commands, even if it cost them. And this is what we see happening in the early church. And even if we experience tribulation in this world for the gospel's sake, we are reminded by Jesus himself to be of good cheer because he has overcome the world. Verse 34 says, Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed each one as anyone had need. Verse 36, And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas, by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we see that great grace was not just seen in the great power and the great witness that the disciples preached the gospel in and made disciples in, but great grace was also seen in the generosity that was demonstrated in this church. There was not anyone among them who lacked, the scripture tells us. Those who possessed lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things sold and brought in to provide for the needs of all. And they sold their possessions and they generously shared all that they had and supplied what was lacking among one another. So if you can imagine the diversity in this group of people, some rich, some poor, some some slave, some free. And as the church grew, it encompassed even more and more diversity. They brought the proceeds and they laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. This was not compulsory. It was voluntary. There was no rule or no command that prompted everyone to sell their land and their homes. They were motivated by love. They were not commanded to sell their possessions, but they were motivated to do so. And besides their motivation out of love, there may have been, and I believe there was, another motivation, another motivating factor. And I think we see this motivating factor in Matthew chapter 23 and Matthew chapter 24. Now, we're not going to go there today, but I would encourage you to read Matthew chapter 23 and Matthew chapter 24 and think about it in the context which I'm fixing to present to you here. I believe the words of Jesus, the prophecy of Jesus recorded in those two chapters was a, motiv was a motivating factor for what this early church did. These chapters in Matthew record the prophecy of Jesus concerning the judgment that was coming upon Jerusalem and upon that generation of His day that had rejected Him. It was not only judgment for that generation's rejection of Jesus, 
but it was an accumulation of judgment because of their father's rejection of the prophets and of the word of God, of all of those promises that proclaim the coming of the Messiah. And this actually is where Jesus reminds them that you have stoned the prophets and killed the prophets and the blood of the prophets is crying out. And Jesus calls these religious leaders a brood of vipers and tells them that there is nothing waiting for them except judgment. Matthew 24 lays out God's judgment and the coming destruction of Jerusalem. It's a prophecy uttered by Jesus himself concerning the fate of Jerusalem and the judgment coming upon the generation that rejected Christ as the Messiah. Remember when Jesus is at the temple and he's leaving and his disciples say, look, Jesus, look at this grand temple. And Jesus says, I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another of this temple. And that came to pass. And that's recorded for us in John chapter 2. And John gives us the commentary of what Jesus meant. Jesus wasn't going to literally, he said, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. It wasn't a literal rebuilding of Herod's temple. It was the resurrection of Christ. And that's exactly what John tells us. He spoke concerning his resurrection. He was speaking spiritually. And those religious rulers thought that he was speaking literally of tearing down the temple and literally rebuilding it. They said it took 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to rebuild it in three days? Well, he did it because that temple in Jerusalem made out of limestone only spoke of the true temple, which is the body of the Messiah. And that temple has been raised up and that temple is being built up today with the lively stones, which you all are included So Jesus gives this prophecy of the coming destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple. The end of the Jewish world. This is the end of the age. This is the end of their world as they know it. They could not comprehend that that would actually happen, but it actually did happen in 70 AD. And the disciples of Jesus were well aware of Christ's warning about the coming judgment. They knew they were not to even go back for their possessions but to flee as quickly as possible to escape the wrath of God, the wrath that God would pour out on those who had invited it in their rejection of Christ. Matthew 27, 25. Let His blood be on us and upon our children. They invited the wrath of God upon themselves in their rejection of the Messiah. Thankfully, God is graceful. And many, I believe, who had rejected him came to trust in him and were saved. Probably even many who perished in that city when the Romans destroyed it. In Acts chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, we see the disciples of Jesus selling their lands and their possessions. They knew all would be consumed in the coming judgment. So they sold their lands and they sold their possessions and they used the proceeds to provide for those in need and to spread the gospel. This was not an act of desperation. I want you to understand this. This was an act of faith. They believed the word of the Lord and they acted upon that word in faith. They were not fearful 
but they were faithful. And remember, it is not our strength that God uses, it's our faithfulness that He uses. And so they sold their possessions and they brought them and laid them at the apostles' feet. Notice that the people of God did not take it upon themselves to to distribute to one another as they saw fit. The scripture is very specific about what they did with the proceeds of all the things that were sold. They brought them and laid them at the feet of the apostles to be distributed. This does not mean the people had no part in the distribution. They did. It means the people recognized the leadership Jesus established in his church. And that structure of leadership in the church allowed the body to function in a way that was much more powerful and much more effective as it does today. We bring our tithe and our offering to the house of God each week. Christ works through his body, the church, to minister to his body, the church, and to minister to those outside of the body. He has established the way his body is to function under his headship and it is to function decently and in order so that it functions as effectively as possible by the great power and the great grace that God supplies demonstrated in the great unity and the great love that these disciples had for one another. God moved on the people to bring all to the apostles for distribution We saw this same pattern with the loaves and the fishes. Jesus multiplied and he gave it to the apostles and the apostles gave it to the masses. All was distributed decently and in order. This is the pattern Christ established for the church to minister to the needs of the body. And again, this was not compulsory. It was completely voluntary. Though voluntary, listen, it clearly reveals the condition of the heart and the soul of that people. It's the same thing our giving does for us today. You are free to give, you are free to not give, but your giving demonstrates the condition of your heart and your soul toward God, as it did with the church here. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. So we saw great unity, we saw great power, we saw great grace. Now we're going to see great fear. In Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, we see the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So at the end of chapter 4, Barnabas sold his land, brought all the proceeds, gave it to the apostles. Then we see Ananias and Sapphira decide to sell their land and their possessions. And they bring their proceeds. But the problem is, They made it out as though they were giving all of the proceeds when in reality they were withholding some secretly. So they wanted to look better in the eyes of the apostles in the church than they really were. The problem is they thought they could fool Peter. And maybe they could have fooled Peter Sometime, but not that time. Because Peter was operating. Remember what the ruler said in the temple? Remember what it was said of Peter and John as they're preaching that gospel? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. This is Peter submitted to the Holy Spirit. And Ananias comes to him and says, Here is the proceeds of the 
the land, the possession we sold. He had kept back part, and he brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? In other words, you didn't have to sell it, and once you did sell it, you could have given any amount you wanted to give. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. His last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. Great fear. So like Barnabas in verse 36, Ananias and his wife sold their land as a completely voluntary act. They were free to keep it. They were free to sell it. They could give all or they could give part. And the amount they would choose to give was completely up to them. They chose to lie about the percentage of the proceeds they were giving. They made it out as though they were giving 100% when in reality they were holding some back. They made it appear that they were giving all but they were only giving a portion while keeping back some for themselves. Keeping it back wasn't the sin. It was the lie that was the sin. When we lie, we may think we're lying to man, but we are lying to God. And that lie cost them their life. Psalm 19, verses 9 and 11 through 11 says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold, yea, more than fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. The sin was not in keeping back a portion of the sale. The sin was in lying about the portion that they were giving. Their heart and their soul was not one with the others. Do you see this? Ananias and Sapphira, their heart and their soul was not one with the others. Their heart and their soul was for themselves. They gave for their own glory and their own need to be exalted. And they lied and it cost them their life. And upon their lying to the Holy Spirit, both Ananias and Sapphira, three hours apart, so Ananias comes in, lies, drops dead. Three hours later, his wife comes in, lies, drops dead. Great fear came upon the church. This was the judgment of God upon their sinful lying. Christ would not allow his church to be established on a lie, so he allowed this judgment of sin. God could have extended grace. But God did not extend grace. He judged them and allowed them to die in that judgment. Did Ananias and Sapphira deserve God's judgment? The answer is absolutely yes. Does that mean because we're alive today, we don't deserve God's judgment? The answer to that question is absolutely no. 
We deserve God's judgment and death as much as Ananias and Sapphira did. The difference is we receive God's grace while they receive God's wrath. We've all lied. We've all cheated. We've all done worse. And in our modern sensibilities, we want to say when we read this story, well, that's not fair. Why would God allow them to be killed? Why would God kill them? You know, we want to dance around this. Well, technically, God didn't really kill them. No, listen, he did. God, whoever struck the blow, whether it was the angel of death or, or whoever it was, God gave the command for the blow to be struck as a result of the sin of this couple. Now, we don't like to talk about this today because we don't like this idea that God is someone we should fear. But when God allowed this judgment for this sin to come upon the church, I want you to see what happened. It says, great fear came upon all who saw and heard this. Instead of a lie, the fear of the Lord spread throughout the body of believers. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God stopped the lie. He cleaned the stain and he infused his newborn church with wisdom. That's grace. That's grace when you understand that Ananias and Sapphira were not the only two people that deserved death in that church. They all deserved death, but they were the two that received it by the grace of God. Because that motivated the rest of the church to operate in great fear, and I believe great wisdom as the church grew from there. You say, well, what, well, what happened to us? Look at us today. Exactly why we're talking about what it's going to take to make the church great again. Jesus and his disciples taking the proceeds of all of this land and all this property sold. Now, I have to say this, and this may sound political, but it really isn't. This is absolutely spiritual. Jesus and the disciples were not communists, and they were not socialists. I want you to understand this. Actually, there are theologians who use this scripture as a proof text that the church and Jesus was actually a communist and a socialist, and, and, and that's why we should embrace those political systems today. And, and there are people in the church in America today promoting that, even among conservative circles of the church, saying, well, a little socialism might not hurt, or giving us a little wiggle room here. No. This has nothing to do with politics. It's a spiritual issue. The scripture affirms our right to own property and to do with it as we wish. We see this in Acts chapter 5 verse 4. Some today would have you believe that Jesus and those early believers were proponents of a communistic way of life. They absolutely were not. The selling and sharing of possessions was motivated and governed by love, not by a government. What governments do today in forcing men to give out of coercion the gospel does in, in motivating men to give out of love. The love of God should be the only motivating factor we need to 
prompt us to give. So I want that to be very straight. I want you to understand this truth. Those people had a right to their property. They could keep it. They could sell it. They could keep as much of the money as they want, or they could give as much of the money as they wanted. That was their prerogative. The problem came when they began to lie about it to make themselves look better than they really were. Because none of us look good in the eyes of God. We are all products of His grace. We are all beneficiaries of His grace. We are all breathing oxygen in this room today because of His grace and no other reason. Because we've all committed the same sin that Ananias and Sapphira did, yet we're all sitting here alive. And they're dead. And we should never forget that. They got what we deserve. We just have not received from God what we truly deserve. We have received His grace. Great unity, great power, great grace, and great fear were foundational to the growth of the church, and they are still today. We are being built together as one in the power of God, the grace of God, and the fear of God. Unity, power, grace, and fear operating in love are necessary for all of us to carry out the kingdom work of preaching the gospel and making disciples. It is what Jesus has commanded us to do. Will we do it? Are we doing it? We need great unity, great power, great grace, great fear, and great love to do that. Amen? Let's get ready and come to the table. Every week we come to this table, it should remind us of God's grace. There is salvation in no other name. If you have never trusted in Jesus, I want to encourage you to trust in Him right now. Our only hope is Jesus. Our only salvation is Jesus. There is no formula for that salvation. There is only a name. There is a man. One man, one name. Jesus. That we must trust in. That we must call upon. That we must look to in order to be saved. We saw this in Acts. And Peter and John declare, there is no other name given under heaven by which man must be saved, except the name of Jesus. If you are trusting in Him, you are welcome to this table. If you are not trusting in Him, I implore you, trust in Jesus and be saved. And as you trust in Jesus, 
come to this table. All right, let's stand. Here's your charge today. Teaching men to obey all that Jesus commands is teaching men to hold the unity of the faith, the power of God, the grace of God, and the fear of God in their proper place and in the proper way. The unity of God's people is functionally demonstrated in the human body. That unified function is applied to the body of Christ. And when we are unified in our function under Christ, we will function as God designed. And when we function as God designed, we will be of one heart and one soul. The power of God is the only real power we have. For if we, for we have no power in ourselves to do the work of the kingdom, to see the salvation of men made manifest. In other words, we have no power to save men. My preaching cannot save men apart from the power of the gospel present in it. The grace of God is our sufficiency, working in all things. Without His grace, we are lost and undone and without hope in this world. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. The fear of God is an unpopular concept with many today who believe that God is not to be feared. The scriptures teach us that God is to be properly feared and that the fear of the Lord is a truth we should seek to embrace for our good and for His glory. If we do not have all of these, we will likely have none of these. And the church is left to her own failed and powerless devices. This is what we see happening in our world today. Happening in the church today. But here's good news. Thankfully, Jesus has promised to build His church and He will not do it apart from us walking in great unity, great power, great grace, and great fear. And all of this operating in His great love. We are called to trust Him for this. He will supply it. We must believe Him and we must walk in it. This is our charge. Seek His unity. Seek His power. Seek His grace. Seek the fear of the Lord so that Christ's fellowship will give great witness to Christ. So that you will give great witness to Christ in all of your life. Amen.